Hey, what's going on? Educated Guest Podcast, episode 22. Today, we're talking to Joe Peacock. Joe's a close friend of mine. He spent plenty of time in the design industry, art industry, as both a creator, as an owner, as an operator, all the above. So he understands every trapping, every success, and everything in between that comes with the process. The experience, Warner Brothers, Marvel, Screenland, FARC.com, Akira, and his latest project, Marlo Kana. We're going to talk a little bit of education. We're going to talk process. We're going to talk progress. We're going to talk a little bit about everything you're looking to hear about. (laughs) Now, check it out. We've got about an hour. It's Joe Peacock. Tune in. I, I, it's so much easier when you introduce me because then I don't feel like I'm bloating. You right. know, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big boy. Hi, I'm Joe Peacock. I'm the author of the Marlo Kana Cyberpunk novel series. Also, the owner and curator of the Art of Akira exhibit. A UX professional by day and a hobbyist novelist by night. Been doing web-based interfaces and app interfaces for twenty-something years now, and it, it's fun, and then it's boring, and then I go write a novel, and then I miss it, and then I start doing it again, and then it's fun, and then it gets boring, and I go and do something else. <laughs> Fair enough. It sounds about right. Yeah. What's the biggest project you've worked on, and what's the project someone may or may not know that you worked on that you want somebody to know about? Um, let's see. They're all separate answers. The biggest project I've ever worked on for a while, I owned a small studio here in Atlanta and we were the primary outsourcer for all the art and assets in seven to 10 of the Zynga games that were out there. You know, Farmville, Farmville Two, words with friends, cookingville, um, anything with, with friends in the title or Ville in the title, we made, a ton of art for it daily. So in terms of scale, that is absolutely the biggest. If you're talking about hands-on play, like players using the thing you use, you know, like the interfaces I designed and the art that the studio came up with for Candy Cane Horse and Sleigh Bell Reindeer. And, you know, like <laughs> this this person's head would tilt when you spelled a word the right way in, in words with friends. Like, like we made all that crap and you're talking about, I think Zynga had at any given moment, 300 million concurrent users and over a billion subscribed around the world. And it was, uh, yeah, in terms of scale, that would be the biggest thing I ever worked on. Um, yeah. Most interesting. Definitely not that, that, (laughs) that, that was like, you know, like, like claiming that you have a lot of money because you work for a check printing company. You know, and you watched a shit ton of checks just flying by and all those zeros. And you're the one pulling the lever, printing the ink on the check, but that money ain't yours. So, yeah, like it was it was it sounds grander than it really was. It was a factory. But I mean, we ran the nicest, funnest, most well-decorated factory of all the factories. But but it was a factory Um, as far as the most. What was the question? The more interesting. Yeah, I think the most interesting or most rewarding 
and I would venture to say it's something you're working on right now, but I don't want to speak for you. Oh, it is. Yeah. The, the, the Marlowe kind of novel series, like what I'm working on right now, my, my baby, my pet project, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's been the thing that has taught me the most. It's been the most rewarding. It's been the most engaging thing I work on. And, you know, to be a middle-aged adult, I'm 41 and I've been writing you know, since I was 18 years old, you know, professionally published. And this is the first time I've ever tackled like fiction and especially cyberpunk fiction, right? Cyberpunk science fiction. You know, it, it's really weird to think that you can jot out a blog post a day for however many years and then call yourself a writer. And then somebody kind of looks you in the eye, like a good friend of mine. He looked me in the eye and yeah. said, look, you need to understand something, man. You are so far away from what you think you are and it was like well fuck you you know <laughs> your friend and he's like this is friendship right here i'm going to i'm just going to wake you up for a second mm-hmm. you need to write fiction you need to at least once in your life come up with a story completely out of whole cloth where you can't look at someone and say well that's how it happened and then write off all your mistakes as reality you know yeah. and Oh God, was he ever right? And and what's funny is I'm three books into a nine volume series. The books are are generally well received, like a lot of great reviews on Amazon. The traffic, like mm-hmm. like the number of downloads goes up week over week. And yet I'm sitting here at volume four, beating my head against the wall, like this is awful. I'm the world's worst author. I can't get past this crap. And 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 man, if you've never done it, like you think it's easy because you've read you know, 10 a or a thousand books uh-uh. right? <laughs> to invent whole cloth, a reality that must make sense all by itself is, is mm-hmm. and then to make your, your people interesting and compelling to, to start studying like archetypes and Joseph Campbell's hero journey and all those things like that's one Oh one. When you mm-hmm. situation, when you're like, Oh my God, I'm three books in and my, my antagonist has not yet had their premise stated and my protagonist can't make any sense or be interesting in the slightest unless the antagonist is just as exciting. And you're like, oh, God, how do I get out of this hole? Um, so, yeah, there's there's not quite suicidal levels of depression that come along with that. But solving those problems are the most rewarding. So, so for people who don't know, I mean, to give you a quick background on the listeners that I'm targeting with this. I'm looking to target those people that might be 17 years old, uh, kind of at that this big decision point, or they might be 25 at that big decision point where it's time to either make a career change, make an education change, make an education choice, and really just decide, hey, like, can I do this on my own? I've got some skills, but I don't really know what my path is. And they might be working at J. Crew, and they really want to get into fashion, and they don't really know the path but they just know they like clothes or in your case, you might be that 17 year old kid or that 23 year old kid. And you're like, I know I like writing stuff, but I don't really know if I need to go back to get a, a master's in English or master's in creative writing or anything yeah. like that. What do you say to that person that's sitting there and they're like feeling stuck because they think the only choice is either to meet someone like Joe Peacock or to apply and maybe go into debt to go to Harvard. What's the middle ground there? What's the choice? Man, drinking from the fire hose for a second. Uh, 
So I'll, I'll tell you my path, and then I'll tell you why I don't recommend my path. <laughs> I went to college for six to nine months, I guess. you could. It depends on how much you consider breaks a part of college. Um, and then I dropped out to go work for Yahoo, which was a startup at the time through a small company on the side that they ended up acquiring. And this was 1996 when you know, I graduated in 95. I started in, in web stuff when I was, just as a hobbyist as in high school. And then you get this opportunity like, hey, <laughs> here are more zeros than you can possibly like, like ever really like earn. Um, you're you're 18 and you seem to know how to spell HTML. Here's a job with a real human salary that you could survive on. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like, wait, okay, cool. That's what you do. So this is easy. <laughs> like, like, why does anyone do this other crap? Everyone should do what I did. Um, and and the survivorship bias on that right. is remarkable for years and years until you realize that's just not how the story goes. So the first thing I'll say is that. Spending money on education, if you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or something where A, certificates are necessary to even practice your profession, and B, if you get it wrong, people die or spend the rest of their lives in jail, yes, please, God, go get the best education you can afford and surround yourself with the best people you can. But when it comes to any other profession, especially the humanities and art, know that the the ticket you're buying for that education isn't in any of the books. It's in the people you surround yourself with, period, point, blank. We exist in a world right now where the sum total of human knowledge is in a black rectangle in your front pocket. You can you can learn literally everything in MIT and um, Cambridge and Carnegie Mellon and Georgia Tech have all made that possible by putting their entire coursework online for free. If you want to learn it, and you have the tenacity, nothing will ever stop you from learning anything you want to learn, including surgery. You can go <laughs> buy live, livestock and move to Iowa and perform surgery on pigs the way you know, like, I don't know. You can figure it out, right? And and those things matter. What you're paying for with college is first you're you're walking through the door of a you know, presumably four to six year plan where you're much in the same way as the army military in general, you're signing up to go serve in the shit alongside someone who's serving in the shit with you. And at the end of it, there is a unity and a bond and a connection and a familiarity. So that when you talk to someone about where you graduated, if they've graduated themselves, Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what school it was or anywhere else, they can at least know that you went through the same thing they did. Right. So there's a, there's a connection there. And then, College sort of formalizes that that connection in the greater sphere of, of atomic structures of relationships. And all of this to say, if that's right. what you need, go for it, man. I know I know you went to school. You know, Morehouse is awesome. And I that like you learned a lot. You've made great connections. I've met some of those people and they're all brilliant. And it's just like, cool. Mm-hmm. Was it the school or was it the people? And I would argue that the school brought the people together, you know, and to achieve that, you know, to, to build those strata of who you attract, you have to have a track record of success to attract them. And so big machine that just sort of feeds on itself, not in a bad way. It's just the way it is. On the flip side, there is a cottage industry of selling you your hopes and dreams. And you will see these commercials on Cartoon Network at 3 a.m. And any wrestling program will have five, six <laughs> yeah. different colleges, yeah. Phoenix University, American you know, educational to the man and 
Like you pick a city and you put university or college in front of it and then you go online and suddenly you can basically milk someone for 15 to 20 grand for sitting on their computer doing what they could do for free. You know, yeah, you've robbed them of the one essential experience of college, which is getting to know everyone else that I cart 100 percent categorically says bullshit. Like the whole idea of online correspondence school. If it isn't directly related to your financial benefit, once you get that certificate, like your job says, if you if we're going to pay for you to get your degree and you get a raise at the end of it, do the work. That's free money. Why wouldn't you do that? But if you're paying out of pocket and you want to, you know, you're going to go to criminal justice or massage therapy school and like get that certificate and all that stuff, like understand what you're asking for, like understand what you're signing up for, and and. When someone is going to promise you this illustrious, glorious future and you have to do nothing, all you have to do is take courses online. You'll be great. I believe a lot of people can already relate to this analogy of like (laughs) razor sharp washboard abs in seven minutes a day. We're going to sell you this device that Mm. gives you astounding abs. And then, you know, with abs come girls or, or or if you're into that and, you know, like, like, this is the solution to all your problems. Buy our thing and everything will work out. Knowing that what you're doing is buying the idea of it during a point of misery when you're sad and alone and feeling isolated. And you spend that money and you get a dopamine hit and it makes you feel a little better in that moment. And now you've got yet another ad machine sitting in the garage that does nothing. I feel the exact same way about online colleges. And so, you know, like I do think you have to draw a line between the charlatanism of online colleges and selling your hopes and dreams to you versus actual educational institutions that teach you a thing and get you someplace. And the difference to me is who you surround yourself with. When you, when you're going to a Harvard or Georgia tech or Morehouse or, you know, there are luminaries who have been out there and done it. When you look at Berkeley college of music and you're seeing names that were on jazz record top 10 charts in the 60s, 70s and 80s teaching you how to make music, you know, that you want (laughs) like that, that you cannot. I mean, the money is just a formality. You can't buy that. If you can sit around with a Herbie Hancock and watch that man teach you how to run any number of synthesizers, that's an education that you you can't just, you know, poof out of thin air. You that's worth it. But I will tell you that an English degree is by and large bullshit, like all by itself, unless you plan to teach English. No, I was to that point, man. I, I'm thinking about the Herbie Hancock thought you just had. And I was listening to uh, this lady named Lisa Nichols, I believe. She was on Oprah. Uh, she's written a couple books. I think the name of her book is Abundance Now, I, I believe. But I was listening to her and she was talking about her definition of success. And you know me, man. I always. That's a, one of the reasons I even got into podcasting because I listened to a ton of them. But she was saying that success is like a definition of how we want to choose our memories and specifically as it relates to money. And we're looking for more money because we're looking to access better and better memories. And when I even think about that, just struck a chord with me, first of all. And when I think about education, when I think about any big, big investment I've made, and it sounds like any that you've made, it's all for the betterment of you know, how were those memories perceived in hindsight? So when I think about like my experience at Morehouse or even if I had gone to, you know, Berkeley College of Music or something like that and get those memories, at the end of the day, yeah, the knowledge is accessible everywhere, but 
the same time, how do you want to remember that time? You're going to spend the four years anyway. And I would argue, at least in my experience, you know, that human connection is kind of irreplaceable when it comes to education. Um, what do you think? There's a that? very Oprah perspective on things. Um, it's not a bad No, I mean, I don't know that any perspectives short of, you know, fucking Nazis and shit are bad. Um, I mean, it's all about the lens through which you're looking, right? And it's not even a choice sometimes, especially, and absolutely no um, old man bullshit right now. But I have to tell you that the older you get, the more lenses you have looked through. Hopefully, there we have a president for whom that's probably not true. But, you know, with the ups and downs of life, I, I genuinely hope I'm going to, I'm going to, like, this is my closing line, but then we're going to just continue with the podcast. I genuinely hope every single person mm-hmm. who listens to this gets it wrong. And I mean, wrong, wrong. I mean, like, fall on your face, hurt yourself, have to recover the hard way, knit your bones in front of people, have them all remember it, fail. I want that for you. And the reason yeah. why is because A, you took a big jump. And B, the chances of you missing ever again are minuscule because you'll learn. Like if if mm. if getting from point A to point B is dependent on your learning how to fly, you're going to fall down and it's going to hurt because we weren't meant to fly. We were meant to invent ways to get from point A to point B, you know? And I think that at whatever point you you grow that that part of yourself if you're looking at it and you're 18 years old and you're deciding college or workforce or you know whatever like remember this is a binary decision that you think you have to make and it's not true you know you don't you there is no like affirmative path you must follow aside from what pressure you get from mom and dad or from other teachers or from the people around you or coach at school is like you are the best football player and you you're 18 years old you have had the experience of mm. of what it's like to not play football if you've been doing it for four years. It is your identity. It is you understand. You bleed right. whatever colors of the school until you go to another school. And then presumably and hopefully get drafted. And then you bleed the colors of whatever team decide to sit you in on the bench at that, at that you know prestigious outfit in the NFL or CFL or AFL in my case. And it's like, then you sit there and you wait for your chance to shine and then you go out there and you shine. And then the next thing you know, you're 27. Um, knees are a little blown. Spine hurts a little bit. Hopefully you've got six to seven figures in the bank to go invest in a car dealership, clothing label. Mm. These are best case scenarios for a <laughs> lot of your listeners. Like you're a sports hero or you're a musically gifted person. You know, like you are the top 1% of the 1%. You still have to know that you're, are limited only by what you understand and you could you could at any point you want to stop and change direction and go and the only thing you have to overcome is the food water air problem you know you need something over your head to keep the rain off of you you need food in your belly and water so Mm -hmm. you don't die and then from there you're pretty much free to do whatever you want to do um the only thing that will upset you and get in your way is the opinions of everyone else right if you can learn to not care about that, you're free to do whatever you want to do. So when I think about success and better memories, like that's such a 2018 aspirational Instagram, you know, like like the way people make fun of how millennials see the world. That's how I think she's selling the world. And that makes no sense to me. Like, I think mm. uncertainty and fear breed a lot of 
crazy decisions, both good and bad. And I think when you're getting out of the institution you've been formally introduced to for 12 years, and you're now kind of looked at and said, okay, it's time. You have to decide. You have to go be blue collar or go into education. That's that's not true. Like that's not true at all. And I think that, you know, in the case of a lot of your listeners, if living at home for another year or two to figure it out helps you, then do it. You know, if mom and dad are willing to take on some of the financial responsibility of you post your your you know primary education, take that time. God, please, because the second you sign a mortgage or the second you become independent, it's on you. Like you have to survive on you. And it all comes down to who you know at that point. And that's that's scary. But I think, you know, like I, I meandered a little bit, I, it, but there's a like when I look no, at no. my life and I think about success. Um, and you know my story because we're friends and you've heard a lot of it. Every single great success I've ever had had a tragedy right around the corner that took it from me. Every mm. single one of them. Mm. I've been on you know bestseller list when I put out a book and then a year later had a mental collapse and ended up in a hospital because I worked so hard to make that happen through basically you know 18 hours a day was blogging, writing books, getting stuff out there, doing some video interviews, and this is like pre-YouTube or, you know, around the time YouTube was just coming up and staying in the social media sphere 24 seven. So I was always relevant so I could sell another thousand units so I can make that list. And then all of a sudden my mind and body right. collapsed. And, you know, and I'm not talking about the, you know, white girl, I found out I'm bipolar way. I mean, the, like, I really went through the shit and, 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 you know, yeah. by, chasing the trappings of success and lists and numbers and how it looks to be successful. I betrayed who I am as a person inside my head because none of those things actually made me happy. They made me high. They made me full of dopamine mm. with external validation. Apparently I am successful because this list said so, or this website said so, or this person said so. Um, the one person that wasn't really having an opinion on the matter was me. And you know, you, you fast forward through another series of successes, that small studio I owned, that thing went bankrupt, tits up completely yeah. when our biggest vendors um, you know, filed bankruptcy, collapsed and couldn't pay us. So I couldn't yeah. pay my people. So I lost my company. You know, my marriage was successful for years until it wasn't and it fell apart. And, you know, all these things like that's sort of the two edged coin is if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it will fall apart. So you have to get really careful yeah. about the definition of success. And right now it's Lambos and helicopter pads and Coachella pictures on Instagram and all this, like, like all this aspirational shit that is so easily faked. And, you know, the smiles come really easy when someone points the camera at you. If, the, if you think you're supposed to smile, you just boom, gets bright and all of a sudden boom. And, but what about that other 45 to 50 minutes you guys were fighting the entire time on the trip? But everyone on the internet thinks you have the best right. ever. That can easily graduate out to life. You can do that every day of your life and live and pretend and smile at the exact right moment. Everyone thinks you have it all together and you just don't. And what I would say is that the happiest moments of my life came at the poorest, least financially wealthy, least well off, least materially, materialistically you know, uh, rich. And, you know, that's not to say I don't like having stuff. I, I love having stuff. Stuff is awesome. Like 
myself with stuff that's really yeah. cool. I have a nice desk and a, you know, a laptop that I, my old laptop just died and I had to go buy a new one and thank God I had enough money in the bank to do that. But as you know, um, there was a period in time, you know, in my life, not five years ago where I literally had my dog, some clothes, my truck, a laptop and a shit ton of time. Like that's all I owned in the world. Yeah. And so to have some creature comforts, and to get that that stability back and have that, you know, the the, the pre-described version of success, which is, you know, land, money, and, and a little bit of fame, um, to start scraping those things right. back again, it's really interesting to me just how little I value the actual stuff and the ratings and reviews and the this and the that of whatever I make. And instead, the opportunity to keep making it day after day, that's what makes me happy. Like when I wake up this morning and I'm like, I'm going to talk with Justin for a while. We're, we're going to talk about success and art and all these things. Like, thank God I get to do that. That is awesome. Appreciate it, man. I think it's a perfect segue. I mean, number one, all of what you've said is part of the reason why I've started this podcast. And it's part of the reason why I've gotten out of my own way. Obviously, you know past year and year and some change it's been you know ups and downs for both of us and having these conversations ongoing throughout that period of time has been part of what's you know propped me up to be able to do what I'm doing today and continue to do the work and to just get back to that childlike version of myself where I was that kid you know making making music until 2 a.m 3 a.m you know producing songs for some pretty cool artists and I felt you know, on a smaller scale, similar levels of success. And I can definitely say that, you know, I look back and there's songs that I've made on YouTube right now that are like, you know, half a million plays, half a million, half a million views. And to some, that's my, maybe nothing. And to some, that's maybe a ton. And I'm like, yeah, I definitely remember making that. But at the end of the day, like what little money, if any money I saw from that is completely gone and I forgot I made it. And at the end of the day, like the stuff that I love the most is the making. And we've talked about this being in the moment of, for me, it's always like dancing in my room after I make a song that I love. (laughs) By the time it gets to everybody else, I've already had my moment with it. And I'm sure it's the same with you in writing where, you know, by the time it hits the presses, by the time it's drop shipped to whoever ordered it, by the time, you know, you see it in person and probably 15 minutes after you first, you know, get that press copy you've already had your moment. You know what's in every single line of every single page. And you remember writing each line. You remember which ones tripped you up. You remember which ones were flowing naturally. You know, what, what is that moment of greatest high in the making for you? Yeah, you definitely. Feel that? There's a bunch of different highs. I think anyone who's experimented with enough pharmaceuticals can tell you that like not one gives you a different feeling <laughs> than the other. Right. Um, so right. the greatest right. highs, uh, There is no beating that first time you hold the printed material that you spent a year writing and it's all there in that format that resembles every successful other author you've ever seen in your life. Right. When you when you have that little five by eight bound designed cover, well edited, copy edited, clean, crisp, formalized typeset and produced book and you're holding that. Um, yeah. The only feeling I can possibly imagine that come close is having a baby and holding it for the first time. And it's like, wow, all that pumping and grunting and nine months of sweating and hurting and now 
this thing is here. Um, <laughs> I've, I've never had a child, so I can't one-to-one relate that. And I also feel like once the book is done, I don't have to feed it or change its diaper anymore. So I prefer the book part. That's just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like I, I have cats. I'm, I'm good enough there, right? Um, but when it comes to like the highest highs, I the euphoria of being stuck on something and then becoming unstuck on that thing so that I can move forward is the greatest high I can, I can really, it's a high, but it's the one I like the most. It's, I had a unique moment last night where, you know, again, like transcribing this back to what I'm onto, I've been working on the Marlo Connor series. I, I came up with it when I was 16. Mm-hmm. I did a first draft of it in 2004 and for a 24-hour charity event called a blogathon back then. I wanted to benefit the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which is, you know, uh, is an organization that helps artists who can't afford lawyers, which, by the way, um, they call them starving artists for a reason. Um, when you're a freelance artist, you make whatever page rate you get, and then that's it. They don't have insurance for you. They don't have a 401k. They don't, that $300 uh-huh. is what you have for this piece of art that could go into a poster or it could become like the icon on a t-shirt at target and you never get a single dime for it. You know, this happens, right? So, so organizations like that right. matter. And for young artists, you need to know you just, it isn't a deterrent. It's an, uh, it's a table stakes. You got to understand that when you come to the table and decide you want to make art for a living, you're making art for a living. You need to figure out the living part too. Like it is super important. The art is not all mm-hmm. the art is some, um, but that, I digress when I'm looking at these things and a real world example is I have this, you know, Marlo kind of series. I refactored it in 2015 uh, when a, a reader of mine, old reader of mine during my hiatus came to me and let me know she was not doing well. She's you know dying of cancer. And we had a heart to heart and it was just like, wow, that is one hell of a heavy moment. Thank you for sharing that with me. And like, what, what can I do? She goes, well, write me something. And I said, what do you want me to write? She said, uh, this is a long di- discourse, kind of condensed down to a few seconds. But she mentioned the the yeah, science yeah. fiction novel that I wrote in 2004 for the charity event, which was God awful. Like everyone who read it, even my biggest fans were like, <laughs> wow, stick to your stories about your computers and yeah, you know, like, things you did as a team. Like, you're terrible at this part. Um, and it was like, well, yeah, your dying wish would have to be me writing this thing I'm scared of. Um so she said that she did that. I took a stab at it. I had a very close friend read it. He said, this is pure shit. Um, he wasn't being mean. Like this is a guy <laughs> that your best friends in the world are not going to be the ones to tell you the nice things. They're going to be the ones that look you in the eye say, mm. you need to hear this because I love you. And if you go out the door with this, you're going to fail. Um, I need you to hear that. And, and he mm. was that. And he pointed me, he's a pro. Um, and he pointed me at references and like, Here's here's your schooling. Here's how here's the hero's journey. Here's how to write fiction. Here's, you know, um, Sean Coyne's books on, on self-editing and Save the Cat, and like all these references that really matter and teach you the fundamentals of just telling a simple story. So mm. I went back and refactored it and mm. took another stab at it and another stab and another stab and another stab and finally got somewhere that didn't suck. I hired an editor. She's phenomenal. Uh, she came in and read it. She guided me in the path. It took a while. It came out. People didn't mind it, but by and large, people didn't even read it. Like, like it was out there for a while before it kind of paid it. Like people paid attention. It was like when volume three 
of this series came out is when people finally started catching on that this is not going away. And, you know, maybe we'll just make the guy yeah. happy and read his thing. And now people dig it. And now I'm on volume four. And the real world example of last night, I've been struggling hard because this story is, it's one novel that I've decided to chunk up into nine sections because it's way more fun to do it that way. But I'm through act one. I'm into act two now. And act two is where the mm. stakes start to matter. Like you have all the introduction stuff. You've defined your protagonist. You've defined their antagonist. You've defined the world. You've put all the characters in play. They're all here. Now they have to do the thing. And the thing is important. I had it all figured out. I knew everything. But the one thing I did not factor for is how the antagonist would stop them doing the thing. I only had, you know, Frodo and the hobbits marching through the fucking forest. I didn't have, you know, Nazgul. I didn't have any, you know, like, like the challenges were way too superficial. And so I just for a second and, you know, because yeah. I wasn't there yet. I hadn't written it yet. They were allowed to be superficial because it was like, you know, make sure to put this part here later. And now I'm now it's later and I got to do it. Mm-hmm. And I've been beating my head against the wall with some stuff and. I write it and delete it because it's just not working. And I get, you know, six or seven chapters ahead because I just can't write this one chapter and it's just not clicking last night. Just watching a random YouTube series on uh, pro wrestling of all things, it was like, oh shit, I've got it. Boom. <laughs> like that feeling, like I, I darted out of my room and went to my girlfriend's room and I'm like, I, I figured this part out. She's like, good. <laughs> like, go write it. That is awesome. Um, those daily victories or, you know, weekly victories, it's, I think the same thing is like getting a personal record in the gym, you know, you put up that bench press number. Yeah. You, you kind of didn't ever think you could get, but then you did. It doesn't make the rest of the world tremble. No one really cares that you had that personal victory except you, which is why it matters the most. It's the one that's not on display. It's the one that's not for anybody. It's 100% by you for you, you know? And those to me are the ones that are the biggest high because when you feel yourself growing, when the, you know, that butterfly cracks out of the cocoon um, and you're the first one to see it, the first one to know it. And you're like, oh man, I can't wait to show the world. It's not time yet, but I can't wait to show the world what I just figured out. And that's, that's the most beautiful moment. And I heard a ton of stuff in there, but I'm going to point out one thing like references. And I want to talk about cyberpunk because Obviously, that's the genre of the novel you're writing. And when you first told me, I mean, I, it's like I got reintroduced to an, to an old version of me. And I was like, man, I used to like this stuff. And now I understand it from, I guess, the, uh, the political side of it, if you will. Like the uh, kind of the, say what? <laughs> I mean, we're living it right, right now. We are, we are living, you know, any of those William Gibson uh bruce sterling philip k dick uh no totalitarian government based on infinite surveillance that you willfully give them is so far away in the 80s and 70s and 60s right so give give me the basic basic definition so my mom's listening to this my dad or somebody has no idea what the hell this is and what is cyberpunk and why did you choose to write in this genre and why is it relevant elsewhere in art like where do you see it elsewhere Okay. Um, cyberpunk, the, the, what I would consider the daddy of cyberpunk, you have your granddaddy and then your daddy. Granddaddy would be like Phil K. Dick. 
Um, Orson Welles could be considered granddaddy of cyberpunk. Like, all of these science fiction authors from so far before, Arthur C. Clarke especially, um, you know, like, like all uh, Fahrenheit 451 could be considered a cyberpunk book. Mm-hmm. You're going, you're forecasting into the future based on now, looking at the warning signs and then making those warning signs true mostly defined around technology and warnings around what technology will do to us as humans when we lose our humanity and rely on the technology. Um, Bruce Sterling, who is the daddy of cyberpunk, just puts it in four words. He's high tech, low life, right? Mm. It's, it's crime is all cyber and, you know, violence is mostly cyber and culture is mostly cyber. And these are the gutter pumps of that culture. It's the same way in music where everything's popping glitz and glam and all that. And the reaction to that was wearing leather and spikes and never showering and safety pins through. That's punk, right? Yeah. Take, take that analogy over to all culture and put it on online. And then cyberpunk would be the punks of that culture. You know, the, the nonconformists, the hackers, the, you know, the, the culture jammers, the, the people who get in the way of the big corporate conglomerates who have co-opted the thing that you, you liked, Mm. So why cyberpunk? Because I grew up on it. It It was my entire world was all cyberpunk stuff. Blade Runner and Ghost in the Shell, Akira, especially Akira, as you, as you know, Um, uh, and anything Philip K. Dick wrote, anything Bruce Sterling wrote, William Gibson wrote, you know, like you, you, you go along and you read it because it's this vision of the future where you see yourself as the, chaotic good guy who's going to do crime in the name of good because the corporations are even more evil even though they look clean and well cut and 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 that's the machine that runs things but they're they're doing it at the detriment of humanity Mm. and that was so far away back in the day like the the closest thing we had to that was like max hedrum in the 80s right (laughs) so everything else was just super forecast and super way out there and i I loved it because I everyone imagines themselves as the cool hand Luke or the, you know, the 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 hero who is dark in their heart but does it for the right reasons. And you mix that with technology and it I it ate me alive. I loved it. You fast forward to now and you think about cyber. So there you go. That's you a wrap. Watch great episode, Carbon, great conversation with Andrew me, and Nikki from Hall As you can see, two brilliant minds in the space. Good we God, everywhere from live action movie, the inspiration that started it all. Based on we moved one into of the best mentorship, the importance of ever distributing your network. During its heyday in the 90s, determining your network. All the cliche sayings. So wrong Nothing cliche about this episode. We then yeah. we started talking about always having a 24-7 experience in an artistic world. Of living a quote-unquote creative life is what's happening right now. A term coined by Andrew. Hmm. As it will be seen. And last in the but future. not least, we talked and about the importance the of commerce is, and all creativity those things and where we the two meet. are literally happening. Right Hopefully, now. you enjoyed mass, and really, really who have got a lot out of this experience, out of this conversation. We're here to build a network, connected system of people communicating We're here with one another, to develop personally, develop professionally, so that we can be inspirations without having superficial needs. Axe body wash. Always love the sayings. If you want to be a billionaire, help a billion people. If you want to be a millionaire, and, you know, help a billion like, people. That's what we're here and then to find out what it's going to take for us you. as artists even to help that million, to like, help that billion. Worse. 
So when I think about a future tale where that's happening, and to provide for you our might as well be saying, work. and also people that's what breathe, this is about. and they eat you can too. Follow us, keep and up also with us people are different races on Instagram. We just that is your basic. Hopefully, you will keep up with us. I'm excited about the guests we have coming. I'm excited about the conversations to come. I'm excited about the transformations that are happening on a daily basis. And say, okay, cool. Right now, have already happened. these are your table I'm stakes. This is everything that is. I'm excited happening. about this what movement. I'm excited about what we're talking about. And I'm excited about what and we're doing. And then on the, on the so much. related, right next to it, and we'll talk cyberpunk to by and large has had a fascination with Asia and Asian cultures. Yeah. Mostly and predominantly from my understanding, because even in the 80s, Chinese business and Japanese business at the time ran the way cyberpunk authors saw American businesses eventually running, where it's centralized control through distributed systems of technology that are masked as entertainment. That has been China for a very long time. Like these new social networks where they have citizen scores are not new. This is cultural. It's culturally imprinted in, in the paradigm of Asian culture and has been for years, which is where all this stuff came from. And so there's this fascination with Americans who think that in the future, LA will suddenly turn to Hong Kong um, and we're going to be selling noodles in one cart and hacked cyber chips in the next on the same street right next to one another. And maybe that's true. Maybe not. But does the vendor have to be Asian? Like that's, that's a question I have for you. Like, must they be Asian to translate your genre? Right. And the answer is no. Like I look at minority report and if, you know, you study minority report as a film, especially, but as a book, take very careful notice the number of race differentials in that movie there are none there are no black people in minority report and that is on purpose because in the future of washington dc due to pre-crime they've probably already machine learning their way to disseminating and eliminating the different races that's on purpose. That is a part of the story mm. is that you only see white, handsome and pretty people um, all around the city because they already took care of who they perceived as a threat. And since the moral of the story is that that system was fallible and didn't work, that's actually an unspoken piece of the narrative that all this predictive analytics and all these things have a heavy racial and cultural bias already because the people teaching those systems are of one culture. And anything that seems alien to that culture is automatically flagged as a threat. Mm. That is an important piece of a technologically based society. Yeah. It's not the one I chose to put in my book. My book in America, we solved our racial problems and we solved our problems with LGBT and we solved all of our problems through acceptance because there is a greater threat than us. And that is, quote unquote, the terrorist. Like in America, the walls are closed. Everything's shut down and everything's isolated because the rest of the world is theoretically on fire. They've mismanaged their environment. They can't live anymore. And we have the key. We we build these environmental generators that allow us to persist and also have a good life. So we close our borders, we protect ourselves, and then the ever-present threat all day, every day of quote-unquote terrorists force all of us to look at each other and think the only colors that matter are red, white, and blue. You know, like, like that matters more than you're black and I'm white and you're Asian and you're gay and Right. Like no one gives a shit. But in the story, there's a differential starting with augmentations, cybernetic augmentations, um, false limbs and implants in your eyes and your brain. Only the rich can afford to do these things out of, you know, experimentation. 
um, generally the poor, you know, the poorer people, because everyone has a basic minimum income and everyone has universal insurance in this book. Right. Um, you lose a limb, we'll take care of it for you. But you get the lowest grade, simplest model, whereas a rich person could go and just like completely replace their legs at will. And now they run faster than you. And those schisms are starting to show up because this is the crux of the book. Fame is the only currency that matters. Um, you know, validation and uh, good feelings around how well you produce for the com- the country right. are the only thing that matters. And everyone is streaming twenty four seven. Period. By it, it's not even by law. It's just a close point. So everyone's always on, always connected, always streaming. You know, your friends might look at what you're up to, but by and large, you're kind of just doing your thing. And then the most famous of them um, are watched 24-7 like Hawks. Even when they sleep, they can't stop. And that's Marlo O'Connell, our title character, is the most popular, most most famous person in the entire United American state. Um, everyone knows her name. Like her or hate her, you're watching her. And she's the famous soldier. The most famous show on the feeds is War. She's an incredible combatant, very charismatic, goes out there and kills with a palm. Everyone loves her very much. She falls in love and decides to back away from all that and gets very boring. And the ratings start to go down. So the forces that be manipulate her into a situation where the ratings must go back up by introducing conflict in her life she didn't see coming or didn't even want. And they can because they can. And that's the story, right? Mm. It goes on there and it gets a little bit more bold. I'm sorry. I feel like I just talked over you. I'm sorry about that. No, no, man, you, this is your show. I'm just here facilitating, but I'm hearing so much interesting stuff in there. And the first thing that comes to mind is the current popularity of cyberpunk and kind of this reintroduction. You see Blade Runner two coming out. You see, obviously the matrix is some years ago, but you know, I started seeing bumper stickers that (laughs) literally say, I think it's a, the Matrix was a documentary, and you see um, the popularity of Black Mirror specifically that it comes to mind. And as I watch those things, and others watch, and others comment on it, you get people that are just excited about, oh, this is a good story. Da da da. You get people like me who are creeped out about it, and then you get people like you who are knowledgeable and have very specific commentary regarding the subject. My question is, what is the consequence of? In your novel in particular, what's the consequence of getting everything right? What's the consequence, positive or negative, to the way that we live as a society? Because Blade Runner, I mean, I mean, there's probably some details from as far as I know that aren't exactly correct. But for if you're aware of what's going on in society today, it's pretty, pretty damn accurate. That was 20, 30 years ago now. And if you're predicting the next 20, 30 years, is there a greater consequence to getting your plot line correct? Is that your aim? So first of all, I have to say that um, I kind of disagree with you on Blade Runner because we don't have replicants and we're not, you know, mining and terraforming the rest of space. And that's, you know, me being a little bit of a show off for a second. You know? <laughs> that's what I'm saying, man. Like, um, no, it's, it's like in terms of social. Absolutely. I, yeah. I agree that there there are consequences out of Blade Runner that scare the shit out of me. And I'm seeing them more and more, especially if you just look at the fact that like just replace replicant with working class and then dehumanize them. That is what I see. Yeah. When I think about my future, what is the consequence? To me, it feels inevitable Mm. that eventually we're going to become a nationalist society because we're losing our status around the world. We have Silicon Valley. We have the greatest minds all flocking to here. 
Um, we're starting to put up walls and barriers to keep the rest of them out because of the color of their skin or where they came from originally. Like, who gives a shit what value they bring? And in close proximity to other people of value, the territory is starting to matter more than the intermingling and the and the you know like promotion of of our species as humans. You know, like we have an air, food, heat problem that's really starting to show up right now. Mm. And it's just going to get worse. So the first consequence I would say is that the rampant demolition of this little blue and green sphere that sustains all life in the name of advancing something technologically, uh, mostly because we want it, mostly out of convenience, mostly out of entertainment. Right. You know, like I think of things like Tesla and, I'm, you know, Elon Musk has his fan base and he has some problematic behavior in the last few whatevers. But you think about the fact that like sustainable energy that isn't reliant on polluting the environment, pretty important little thing to promote, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we got that right tomorrow, everybody dumped their cars and started, you know, using Tesla's and automated systems and, and hyperloops and all that stuff tomorrow. Yeah. We're still 2.1% degree or 2.1 degree increase in the ambient temperature around the world. We're already losing Antarctica and the Northern pole. Like, like this is happening. Yeah. Sea levels are rising as of right now. And when the sea levels rise, the ambient warmth of the liquid around all those icebergs goes up a notch. Then they slowly start to degrade. So I do feel like if you follow climate science in any regard whatsoever, we are on a irreversible path to losing at least some of the icebergs and polar caps that we have right this second, mm. which means we are on a collision course, an inevitable course of losing some of our coastlines, some of our islands, some of our, you know, like, like that, that entire, you know, architecture. And we're at risk of losing our coral, which is at risk of losing the biosphere that exists within all the coral, which is going to start hurting sea and life populations, which is going to inevitably hurt a lot. Like we're in for some shit right. is my point. And that is irrevocable. There is no way to stop that or reverse that. The only thing we can do is stop making it worse. And I do think that man especially, and I say man, I suppose humankind, but really it's men and their dumb egos have this fallacy that technology will save them if they just try hard enough. Mm. And I feel like that can kind of come true. Every one of us is a magical MacGyver somewhere in our brains, but for the most part, the easiest way to stop watching the hole you're in get deeper is to stop digging. You know, that's that's my opinion. It's like, you know, work on the technology to get out after you stop making it worse. Right. Um, so there's the biggest consequence I can see if I get it right is that we're going to have to start generating artificial atmosphere in order to breathe, in order to survive at a temperature that's lower than an ambient 110 degrees in, you know, anywhere, you know, near the equator at all right um and then i look at other things like i do believe we've already passed the point where entertainment is all i believe that mm. our digital avatars on our xboxes and our playstations and switch and you know twitch and and in life in general um take a look at how people behave on instagram and in facebook versus their real lives we've already started curating our existence for a best face forward through these little windows that we open for other people to look at us. Yeah. Some of us run the risk of performing that almost all the time to the point where we believe that's who we are. And that will break 
very fragile psyches are starting to fall apart. I'm sure you've seen on your newsfeed, a lot of YouTube stars very recently have all in mass stopped broadcasting because the toll was too high in order to sustain not just the money, but the traffic in order to keep the money coming. Right. The workload it takes to exist, it's kind of like that old joke back in the 80s was, would you fight Mike Tyson for one round for a million dollars? And the smart money was no, because at the end of it, you wouldn't be able to count your money because he would at very <laughs> least destroy your brain, if not kill you. Right. Um, and I believe that Iron Mike was pound for pound the best fighter that has ever existed on this planet. And I mean that in any discipline whatsoever. So when I look at the 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 warning signs, this the way you know, whatever creator you believe in gave tigers a very bright orange and black pattern with pointy ends on five of their six ends. Mm. Um, that's a warning sign enough to not fuck with that thing. And I do believe that the hubris of man is is when you know Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Def can go, you know what? I think I want to fight Mike Tyson. That ego will get you every damn time. And when you fast forward that to now, it's like Oh, but don't worry. Technology will save us. You know, don't don't worry. Our president will save us. Don't worry. No, it's all bullshit. Right. You say. And then you get with other people who think like you and then you all save each other. And the trick isn't appointing one person or a group of people who happen to have access to technology or came up with a clever way to rank women's attractiveness at Harvard and parlayed that into a shit ton of money. Uh, making Facebook and digitally manipulating our emotions in order to get what they want. Mm. They're not our saviors, right? Right. We are our saviors. And to fast forward in Marlo Kana, that is the point of the book that at the end, the, the society is so entrenched in the mechanical workings of their living, just like we are right now, get up in the morning, make coffee, read the news, go to work, do the work, maybe go to the gym, come home, have a drink, watch entertainment via streaming device, have another drink, go to bed. That sounds so monotonous. And yet I'm certain even at the demographic you're targeting this to, there are people who can relate to the mechanic workings of day-to-day life yeah. on a long enough timeline. You can say the special moments came rarely. And when they did, they were special because they came rarely. And so you look at someone who forces those special moments, like, Oh, this week I'm traveling to Bali, staying in a five-star resort, Instagram influencer, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Here I am on my yacht. Half of it's rented. Most of it's borrowed. Uh, they DM'd to whoever owner to work out a quote-unquote collab. And they faked this existence to sell to everyone else that they are the person you should be aspiring to be. And all they've really done is convince someone else to go get mentally unhealthy in order to sustain whatever that bullshit is. That's another inevitable consequence of my book. Um, Man. Like my isn't nearly as focused on the technology of cyberpunk yeah. as it is the society. And that's, I, I feel like when I look at things like Minority Report, um, it is not aspirational to want to tell a story where all black people are already incarcerated, right? I, I don't want to do that. And I, knowing Philip K. Dick's body of work, he didn't either. It probably hurt him to make the decision in the note taking process. Of like, well, if we're going to predetermine crime mm-hmm. and we're going to do it through an analytical set of data and some telepaths, the first thing we're going to do is lock up anyone who's not white. Mm-hmm. That is going to happen because the white people will be running the show and they have to make that decision. When I'm sitting here, re- you know, writing Marlo Kana, um, very, very 
very pointedly, Marlowe is an avatar for the journey I've taken in my life yeah. and have other people take where you get everything you've ever wanted. You really are unhappy because for the first time you're forced to exist like people are supposed to exist mm. without the crutches, without the dopamine, without the distractions, without the hits. You have 24 seven to focus on you and what you are, who you are as a person. And when that answer comes back, I don't know. That is a moment of dread. Um, again, like, like in the way I hope everyone who listens to this podcast fails flat, like hard. I hope you never get to a point where you ask yourself, who am I? And the answer from the deepest core of your soul is, I don't know. Hmm. Like you should always wonder what you want to be. And you should always wonder what you want to do next. But God damn it. If you haven't solved that problem yet, no matter if you're 17 or 70, I challenge you the very first thing you need to do is find out who you are. Like, look at yourself morally, look at yourself physically, and answer that question. And, you know, for those who are listening who, like myself, and I don't want to speak for you, but many of my friends who have those dark nights and have those really sad moments and all those things, and you look to the distractions, whether it be creative distractions, which are more healthy, yeah. Or technological distractions, less healthy, but I wouldn't say bad, to silence that voice in you that's going, hey, 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 you don't know who you are, do you? Right. Shut the fuck up. I got to play Fortnite. Leave me alone. Like, <laughs> like, no. scotch, right? Um, yeah. Those voices are, they're demons. Um, I, I believe in that very heavily. They're the demons that have been plaguing people since Dante. Um, and those demons are the ones you must conquer first. And here's the bad news. You'll never win. You will never truly get rid of them. You can only take your territory and erect the right walls. And then when they start to try and cross them again, you have to punish them with impunity because you can't kill them. Mm. You know, like getting deep into psychology, if you look at Jungian psychology, the ego and the id and the superego, these are all like, these are part of the self. These are known constructs. They are part of your brain. They don't go away. The only way to get rid of them in all reality is to die. So making friends with them, understanding them, knowing what they are, knowing what they do for you, knowing why they exist. Those are your important goals. Like understanding that, you know, no one else outside of you can save you. Even if you're stuck in quicksand and you're sinking and someone throws you a rope, they didn't save you. Mm. All right. You have to grab the rope and pull yourself out. You have to get going. It's very, very rare that someone truly saves your life. And in those moments, you owe them for sure. Right. 100%. But don't count on it. All right. You can't. Because what if they're not there? If you don't learn to survive on your own, whether it be. <laughs> You know, learning how to survive in quicksand or just simply a random Tuesday night where things are darker than they've ever been and you don't really know how you're going to make it to the sunrise. If you don't have the tools available to you, if you don't have that equipment, um, it's going to be a harder challenge. And that equipment is there. You can learn it. You can pick it up. Um, and, and I would say one of the most valuable pieces is just talking to someone, like just mm -hmm. opening up your mouth or your keyboard or your phone and saying, hey, I just need to chat. Right. Boom. Especially if there's someone you know that has been through it before. And so relating it back to Marlo Kana, here we have this 29 year old celebrity, the most famous human being, biggest kill record, most dangerous person on the planet, cybernetically enhanced to the point where she's she's a living specimen. She's the only one with these enhancements. 
And those enhancements in her past have made her fail. They're so powerful, but so secretive that when she was a professional football player and they they discovered she had them, she was accused of cheating, even though she herself as a teenager had no idea. She didn't know how her body worked. She's a teenager. Mm. And I think that metaphor relates to all of us, right? And when they find out she's a national pariah, everyone hates her, and then she enrolls in the military, and within a month she's the most famous person because her, you know, like like people don't really care how you hurt them. As long as you entertain them, you can come back. Take a look at Kanye West. Um, sorry. But but I guess the point is that her greatest strength is also her greatest weakness. Um, her her physically immense, incredible, powerful, technologically assisted body was a failure when it when it was the reason she was banned from football. Mm. It's a failure because she has to eat fifteen thousand, twenty thousand calories a day just to keep the the machinery running because it all runs on her bioelectricity, right? So. You know, like these things are important getting into the art of it. Like you, you really have to look at like when your hero has a power, what's the thing that makes that power their detriment? Like what, what kills them? And I think that that's an allegory to all of us. Like if, if your power is to be entertaining and vibrant and, and bright online all day, every day, and it causes you to fall apart, then your power was also your pain. There's another consequence of Marlo Kana. I do see more and more people as fame and attention become our currency, mm. running into the inevitable human conclusion that you can't do this shit all the time. Like, like, and a two-week vacation isn't enough, and especially when you're spending that two-week vacation chronicling that vacation so your Instagram feed doesn't get bored and you can promote how great your vacations are. Yeah, you know, like, these are the when you ask me about like what is happening in my story that I look back and think if I get this right, it would be of dire consequence. I would say humans being humans as they've always been without <laughs> any or rectification yeah. um, is really the point of the story that we will invent our own demise, that we will bring ourselves down both individually and as a culture. That's, that's what I see. That's what I'm really scared of, man. That's, that's powerful. And Obviously, I've heard versions of that before, but I don't think ever in that much detail and that eloquently said. So, you know, I appreciate that. And because we're wrapping up in just a second, we probably got like five, 10 more minutes. But for people who want to interact with your brand, interact with Marlo Kana in more ways than one, like what do you have planned on the horizon? I know you've told me about some stuff that some things are aspirational, some things are very in in the near future, and then some things have already happened. Like what are those touch points that you know, because most of my audience uh, may or may not be familiar with cyberpunk. And if they are, you know, they kind of see it in movie form. And if they've experienced any books, it's might maybe one or two. So most of my audience might be listening to music, might be, you know, watching stuff on YouTube. How can they interact with Marlo Khanna? And, you know, how do you want to really touch touch a new audience or touch any audience? Oh, well, okay. So very first and foremost is the writing, of course. Um, so I put the entire book for free as I publish it on the website. You can read it chapter by chapter, 100% for free. I don't believe in charging people admission at the gate just to see what I'm up to. If reading in a browser isn't really comfortable for you, then you can get the Kindle. The first book is free on all e-publisher or e-devices, period. And the second and third are only $1.99. So I keep things dirt cheap. And then if you want the paperbacks, you know, they're, they're you know, what they cost, it's $7 a piece. Mm-hmm. I keep them really, really tiny on purpose so they can be affordable. 
Um, but growing it out and getting it distributed in other formats, because I realize not everybody has enough time to read text <laughs> on a screen or or in paper format, primarily being a writer, that's going to be my number one go-to. That's where I work. That's that's my job, is to produce those books. Um, then in, in process right now, we have the audiobook for, for Volume 1 being recorded by uh, Jessica Calvello, who is an anime voice talent, very famous person. I was beyond thrilled that she said yes. <laughs> um, and it's engineered by um, Joey the Mad Scientist. Joey is a musician of some pedigree. Like He's worked with some very famous names, and he's a brilliant musician in his own right. And he recorded a soundtrack to the first volume. To me, it's one of my favorite records I've ever heard, and that's not just because it's my book, my baby. <laughs> it is sonically, it tells the story without a single word of what's going on in that first book, and it is astounding. And then when the audiobook drops, one of the first projects we're going to work on is taking that album and the audiobook and creating a full soundscape. You know, It would be equivalent to an old radio drama. Mm-hmm. where there's sound effects, there's audio audio experience, there's ambience, there's everything is mixed very well. As Jessica narrates the story, Joey's putting the sound design in along with the soundtrack and creating this, you know, everything you're, the only thing you're missing is the visuals. And that will happen with every single volume as we finish it. We're going to create that audio experience. So the one thing missing is what? Movie, TV, cartoon, whatever. And, you know, those, those talks are in the works. Um, there have been people who have approached me and, I don't mean that like, dude, you should make this Netflix. I mean, like there's a studio in Atlanta who, you know, I've chatted with and we've got some ideas and we're working through that. Yeah. Um, But and this is this is fun. Um, Looping everything back to my own personal experiences. I've learned enough about myself that I've learned I can't do more than one thing at a time. Mm. I just I cannot do it to get enticed by the siren song of television, film, movies, animation, especially animation, which is. That's been my love since I was a child. I mean, I run an animation exhibit for Pete's sake. Like, I love animation deeply. It's a beautiful storytelling form. And to be enticed with like, hey, that thing you wrote that you came up with, that you struggled so hard with and learned and basically went to school and failed a bunch and then finally figured it out and you have a story. What if we took that and made it the thing you've always loved? Right. It's like, ooh, that sounds awesome. You know what I have to do first, though, is finish this fucking book. And this is this is a real conversation I've had to have because every writer in the world dreams of being that most successful writer they've ever heard of. Stephen King or George R. R. Martin or, mm-hmm. you know, Chuck Palahniuk, if you're a Fight Club fan. And like everyone has those aspirations. You play you play trumpet. Don't tell me you didn't think about Miles at some point right. with that trumpet up to your lips and think, man, he's the God. He is the guy. Or, or, you know, Kissimmee Washington or, you know, like any any modern jazz, you know, instrumentalist and you listen to them and you're like, man, one day it would be wonderful if. Mm-hmm. And that's only if you're being humble. Otherwise, you're like, that's what I want. That I want that. And when I think about like George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones, you know what I don't want? That. I don't want a situation where some offshoot or other media has taken over what I was charged to do to the point where I quit doing it. Mm. And I don't want to get into a situation where if I've planned nine volumes and nine and volume nine is essential, just as essential as volume one with finishing the story and telling the story accurately. And we sign some deal and TV happens, blah, blah, blah. And I'm writing and suddenly I'm finished with six and they're finished with five. And now they're going to make six and I've got to rush just to make seven, eight, and nine or else 
they will cancel the series or they will write it without me, which is what's happening with Game of Thrones, by the way. Like mm. there's a point at which the studio, like the show must go on. And you have to understand the seed capital it takes for me to write Marvel Kana is zero dollars and zero cents. All I need is a pencil and some paper, and you can find those things for free anywhere. But to get a little more technological with it, cool, $2,000 for a laptop. I can write my novel series. I can publish my novel series. I can design an art. Like, and you, know, you give me a $500 thin laptop, a Chromebook, and I can make a novel series. Mm-hmm. If you want to make a television show, table stakes to make it even competent is sitting in the six figures per episode, all right? Right. Game of Thrones, you're talking like eight figures per episode just to make it what they've made it. Mm. So when they've invested that much capital and you're saying, and they're saying you gave us the right, so hey, good luck with your book. We're going to go on and take this. They can, and they should, to be frank. You sold that. You sold your property. You gave it to them to do, you know, as good stewards, what they said they were going to do with it, and to stop them and say, wait, wait, hold on. I'm not ready for you to do that yet is you reneging on the deal you came up with. Mm. And so it's unfair. And so when I look at this and it's like worst case scenario for me, I finished volume nine uh, sometime next year and cyberpunk is completely out of vogue. Um, cyberpunk 27.7 has come out. The game sucks. And all the cyberpunk you know, episodes of everything on Netflix and Amazon have come out and everyone hates them. And cyberpunk is now anathema. No one gives a shit. No one likes it. My next move is going to be called this uh, military fiction and move on with my life. <laughs> and then someone to do something with it because like, like it won't be my primary job to make this television show. I already know that. I don't know how to make television shows. I know how to write for television mm-hmm. and I've done that. But that's all I've got. Like, I am a writer. That's what I do to put on the mogul hat and be the producer and be the sole source of truth and all this stuff. I can do that in exceptionally short bursts as long as no one's paying attention, because the second it becomes a real job, I will burn to the ground, end up in the hospital again. And I have to know that about me. I have to know that as aspirational as I've ever been and as competent and as capable as I can be in very short bursts to convince someone that I'm the guy to do that job. I really am not. Yeah. I'm really not the guy to do this. There are far more competent, far more capable, far more acclimated people for whom it's just a job to make a TV show and they're going to handle it in a much healthier way. They're going to do a better job. They're going to produce a better product. And my hubris and my ego at 27 or 35 or whatever wouldn't listen to that at 41. It's like, dude, thank God. Cause I got to get some sleep tonight. Like <laughs> old and my bones and joints hurt and I'm an old man and I've already seen this happen with myself. So to me, the greatest success I can think of with Marlo Kana is that anyone listening to this right now reads it. That would be, hmm. that is really the tip that that's the top of the total pole for me, Joe Peacock. If it goes on to be more stuff, yeah, I'm not going to shy away from it. I love the idea. I'm staring at art that my girlfriend, Megan, who's a professional comic book artist, uh, made for Marlo Kana for some covers and for, you know, the animation pitch and whatever else. And it's like, man, this energizes me in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Hey, guess what? It's just pretty, right? I have to stop there. I have to not let that be my job. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was a long and blathering way to say that uh, there's other media planned for this thing I've made. But, 
um, where I'm responsible, what I'm in charge of, what I'm capable of making, keep looking at the website and Amazon or your favorite bookseller of choice because I'm making these books. I don't need permission. I don't need anyone to tell me yes or no, hand me a check, sign off on anything. This is mine and I'm doing it. Mm. And if you, if the story sounds interesting to you, I encourage you to check it out. I hope that you like it. And I will say, you know, a little bit of self-marketing. I have many friends for whom reading is not a priority who started on the first book and can't stop reading it because my style, the way I like to write is very conversational. It's very open. And I write things in short bursts and I distribute them in short bursts, like volume one, two, three, four. Um, most everyone will tell you that you like, if you take a whole novel, a 400 page, 500 page novel, and you slice it up into volumes, it's so much more digestible. You know, it's like you can't eat a steak at once. You have to cut it into bites. So that's why I do what I do. And I would encourage people, you know, give it a shot. If you read the first chapter and it doesn't hook you, cool. It was great. Thank you very much for looking at that. If it does hook you, here's the great news. You can keep reading for free forever because I'm just going to put it out there for you. Um, and if you want to support me somehow, I've got a Patreon. You can buy the books. You can, I mean, there's any number of ways I've set myself up so that I can get a little compensation for the work I'm doing. But you know, know that that's the least priority for me. The biggest is getting people to read the story and learn the lesson I'm trying to teach, which is we're doing this to ourselves, both at a very individual level and as a society level. But the only way to stop it is to start with the self. Mm. You have to stop your bullshit before you can look at anyone else and call bullshit. You just have to. It is the rule. I love it, man. I love it. That's a perfect way to end the show. And I'm really trying to sum up everything we talked about. We moved from definition of education, definition of success to your current work, your brand. And then we moved into a little bit of the story behind Marlowe, the story behind cyberpunk, and then wrapped it up with some very real advice. And honestly, when I think about success for these, any episode that that comes across the podcast, I really love when people are able to walk away and say, you know what? I'm my biggest problem. Justin, Joe, and last week we had guys from Hallraff on. Like none of these folks who I look at and scroll through my feed on Instagram and see as aspirational figures are going to be the ones to save me. They're not going to be the ones to get me out of my own artistic rut. It's going to be me. And I love that you ended it with that with that saying alone. And I just had to thank you for your time, man. Obviously, we're fr- we're friends, we're brothers, and we're going to probably go share a cigar sometime this week if you can get get some time with me and I can get some time with you. And we're going to make this thing continue to happen for ourselves. And anytime we can give back to others, that's that's also a huge, huge win for me. So thanks again, man, for your time. And anything else, any last words or are you good? I just think thanks for having me. You know, like, it's been great watching the podcast grow. And you know, as a fan of your music, as a fan of you as a person, um, I love seeing the differentiation of seeing you move away from just the, you know, like, like success is only defined by this one little tiny thing that I've decided is music. And if I don't succeed in music, uh, then all is lost. Well, you're succeeding in music and you're using that energy to help others. That's, that's the win. Like to me, you know, like, like forget anything and everything you've heard in every rap and, and rock song on the planet. Like all of those things are meant to impress. The reason they want to impress is because they want to reach you. Hmm. And I think that coming another route, going at it from the real, looking at it from like, who are we as people before we look at who are we are as artists? 
that's a phenomenal thing. So thank you for doing that too. And, and thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, dude. We'll chat later. That's it for this episode. And I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Peace, man. So that's a wrap on another episode. Educated guests. Again, this is the podcast for people who feel stuck. Specifically, if you're trying to make a big decision in your life, whether it's going to undergrad or grad school, or whether it's just choosing your own path, ready to take that leap, ready to do something on your own, tired of moonlighting your passion, and then waking up bright and early in the morning to do it all over again, and feeling stuck in that same cycle. We're talking to people who've done it. We're talking to people who've taken that leap before. And we're talking to people who are right in the middle of it as we speak. Hopefully you got something out of today's podcast. Hopefully you get something out of every one of them. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for checking in.